All right, here we go. Welcome to Wednesday nights. We got uh, three weeks left, so that's exciting. We're going to do Philemon tonight and next week. And then the last week is uh, May 12th. We are going to do a one-night teaser slash preview of the summer class, which is going to be on the Trinity. So it's going to be... uh, Survey of the survey. <laughs> and so Derek and I are going are gonna to collaborate on that um, for the 12th. So get excited about that. We will have uh, a resource that you can buy for the summer, um, a book, a companion book. Um, but that won't be until after Memorial Day. So that would be, we'll start that on the 2nd, June 2nd, I believe is that Wednesday. So. All right, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, dig into some Philemon for tonight. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening, and we do uh, delight in this weather, and it is so great to experience the sun and the warmth, and we thank you for creating the seasons that allow us to appreciate them to their fullness, and we just pray that you would Be with our time tonight as we dig into this often neglected book, and we just pray that your spirit would be with us and that we would remain open and receptive to what it is that you have for us uh, from this text, and as Paul is communicating with your church, may we understand what it is that you want to communicate to us as your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... uh, Lee, do you mind shutting the interior door of the, it just gets a little distracting all the children running to and fro. Um, So just a quick little survey, Um, how many of you have ever read Philemon, like prior to this week? So it's uh, certainly, we were discussing this this afternoon, is Philemon an often uh, neglected book, or is it, uh, what was the other word we used? Brent, help me out. Overlooked, but, uh, and basically, is it neglected on purpose, or is it intentionally not dealt with because uh, avoided? So in essence, we don't want to deal with the content of Philemon, and so we just uh, avoid it, or do we neglect it because it's so small, and you think, how could something so small have any value for us? Um, either way, we are here tonight, and so that's kind of exciting. We've, we've covered a multitude of books throughout this year, which has been kind of fun. So this letter is a letter written by Paul to uh, this gentleman by the name of Philemon. Now, there's uh, some questions around when did Paul actually write this letter? He says right away in uh, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and uh, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So in classic letter fashion, we get who's writing, who he's writing to, and we start to ask ourselves, when is he writing this? Um, we know that Paul was imprisoned around 60, 61, uh, so was it about that time 
there is some question around when he says a prisoner for Christ Jesus, does he mean that he is currently imprisoned? You know, this falls into, uh, as N.T. Wright in his uh, approachable commentary groups these as the Paul's prison letters. So is Paul actually physically imprisoned? Uh, if he is imprisoned, the question becomes, is he in Rome or is he imprisoned in Ephesus? Part of that uh, is the relationship to, geographic relationship to Colossae and how could uh, one of the main characters in the book relate to um, or get to Paul where he was at if he was in Rome because it's so far away. Uh, we're going to say that he was more than likely in Ephesus uh, when he's writing this, and, and chances are he was either physically imprisoned or at least being um, under some sort of house arrest with the Roman, um, because of the Roman authorities. So when we see this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, we immediately start to ask, okay, if he isn't physically in prison, why would Paul choose to say Paul, a prisoner uh, of Christ Jesus? Well, there are three main characters in this letter, and I was um, realizing that they won't be on the screen, but the the folks that are watching this uh, far far less than the people that are actually physically here, so I'm going to move over to the whiteboard. I'll keep talking about it. Uh, So there's three main characters in this letter, and we're going to um, see them as they relate not only socially, uh, but also within the church, and then um, and how they relate to one another. So uh, Onesimus. So Paul he says that he is a prisoner of Christ because what he wants to do in this letter is he wants to, to de-elevate or lower his status in the overall hierarchy. In all, almost all of his other letters, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because he's trying to elevate himself as an authority within the church. In this case, he is actually trying to do the opposite and say that, that he is not this highfalutin apostle, which we know that he is, but he's uh, equating himself with Onesimus, who happens to be a uh, runaway, distant, fugitive-like slave, depending on how we see the interpretation of what's going on. Either way, he's not a person of high status. Philemon, on the other hand, we know is clearly someone of high status. If you're getting a letter from Paul, (laughs) probably of significant status. Also, we know that he is a fellow worker. We see that in uh, verse 1. We know that he is writing to the church in Philemon's house. Now, there's a direct connection between the the letter that he writes to the Colossian church and Philemon because... Philemon is existing in Colossae. So uh, when we talk about Colossians, there's some direct connections. There's, we see a reference to Onesimus. We see references uh, to Archippus. And so when we think about Colossians, we can also think about Philemon factoring into this as well. 
So Philemon is a high-status individual within not only society in Colossae, but also within the church. He is hosting the house church that exists at his home. In order to host a house church, you have to certainly have a house that's big enough to have it in your home. And also, we know that he is the owner of uh, Onesimus, because a lot of this is about Onesimus' relationship to Philemon and also to Paul. So Paul makes an interesting move right out of the gate, and he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, uh, moving himself down on the social hierarchy, in essence, with on par with Philemon. Because Philemon, technically at this time, uh, is, he is a criminal. He has left his owner, uh, or his uh, master, and he is on the run. That's part of the context around what we're writing. So Paul is making a case that he is on par uh, with Onesimus. We know that Paul and Philemon had a relationship uh, because of not only how they are interacting with each other, but Paul, as he was planting churches, would have planted this church and would have had a key uh, part in Philemon's life and in his faith. So what else do we do with this call for uh, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ? Part of what he is saying is my life is dictated by my imprisonment to Christ. Now, this is a, this is a phrase that we, we don't really appreciate. We certainly don't enjoy. Um, if you think about all of Paul's writings and how he talks about his relationship to Christ... He talks about being a bondservant to Christ or a slave to Christ. He talks about uh, being dead in Christ. And so he's saying this in a different way, that he, his life is not his own and his life is dictated by his relationship to Christ or the lordship of Christ in his life. So in essence, his decisions that he makes <clears throat> are not his own, but they are a direct result of his discipleship in Christ. Why is he doing that? Part of why he's doing that is he's going to make the case to Philemon that he needs to make a decision based on his relationship with Christ and not on his own personal uh, worldly viewpoint around who he is as an individual. In essence, when you're a prisoner, you have relinquished all of your freedoms and rights to whoever you are imprisoned to. So in this case, Paul is saying... I have no rights other than those that Christ gives to me. And so that becomes important as we try to understand and unpack what we're going to talk about more next week, as Derek is going to uh, talk about more next week. So, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Now, it's interesting, Timothy is referenced here. Uh, Amanda was, so the youth are going to go through this next week, and Amanda was asking me, why is Timothy here? We know that Timothy and Paul were very much in connection with one another. Timothy is seen as Paul's right-hand uh, individual. Whether or not he was a part of physically writing this um, isn't up to some debate. So he writes this letter to Philemon, but he, he references a few other individuals. And it's interesting because... Uh, the first one is a female, Apphia. Now, is Apphia happen to be Philemon's wife, or is it his sister? 
because he says, our sister, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is Philemon's sister that Paul is saying that she is a sister in Christ. So why would he address a woman who was not living in his home at the time? So it was either his wife or his sister. And then Archippus, who is a fellow soldier, how does he fit? We know that he is a part of their uh, church and to the rest of the church that meets in Philemon's house. What Paul is writing about is a church issue. And so he is bringing forward a few individuals to say, this is not just about Philemon and Onesimus. This is not just about Philemon and Paul. This is about what's going on within your church. Because we know that Onesimus would have lived with Philemon because he was one of his slaves, and he no longer lives there. And so for them to reconcile, it's going to, it, for him, him to leave, it has affected the whole household and the whole church that meets in his house. So in essence, we have this house issue or this church issue, and Paul says, I want to bring you guys and gals in on this conversation as I write this to you. Why is that? Well, part of it is maybe uh, accountability. So Philemon gets this letter. It's also addressed to these other two individuals. He doesn't just stow it away and say, yeah, we'll just forget about that. Um, and so he's accountable to these individuals. But also Philemon's actions and his decisions are going to affect the people in his house and in his church. Think of it this way. Have you ever had the moment on a Sunday morning where you see somebody walk through the front door? You happen to be in here. You're here early because you're a superstar and you wanted some coffee and you didn't want to make it at home. And you, to be late would be terrible. Human being, probably need to confess those things, which is me. I would be late if I didn't work here every time. That's why I often delay so that we're starting late. And you think, oh my word, what is that person doing here? Have you ever had that experience? Part of, part of it could be shock. Part of it could be, I can't, I can't believe they dare to even walk through the doors of Timberwood Church. Uh, a friend, he had this, uh, he had this incident <clears throat> He happened to work in the judicial system, and somebody that he had just worked with very recently <laughs> walked through the front door, and he was like, what? What's he doing here? Like, this is my church. I can't believe, like, that person that was just in my care <laughs> and treated me particular ways is now in my church. So we have this interesting picture of these people. Philemon's actions in how he addresses Onesimus are going to affect these other people, and Paul wants to bring them in and say, what we have in Philemon is a church body issue. So oftentimes we can uh, go along different rabbit trails and, and we can miss out on what's going on. As one commentator points out, uh, this what is happening in this letter is a fellowship body issue. 
So then he says, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can oftentimes throw this, throw this phrase away because it's very stylistic, not only of Paul, but also of the ancient Near Eastern world to use this type of phrasing in a letter. But as we see in Philippians, little spoiler alert to next Sunday, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, uh, we have a grace sandwich, which I think is one of Paul's favorite sandwiches to, to serve up. He starts with grace in verse 3, and he ends with grace in verse 25. He does the exact same thing in Philippians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that exact same thing in Philippians 1, and now, or the first part of Philippians, and he says it here. So is it a throwaway comment from Paul, or is it just uh, the reality? I think it's the reality that Paul wants to communicate the importance of, of the grace that comes from Jesus Christ, the grace and the peace that comes from God through Jesus, and the importance of how that is going to be the driving factor around this relationship that is fractured within uh, this church. And I think oftentimes we can undermine the importance of seeing the, the grace that God extends to us, and we talked about this, uh, and the grace that we extend to other people. And he wants to keep that at the front and center. Grace to you and peace. And then he goes on and he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So are you familiar with the Indian, uh, like the country of India, the prophecy with the blind individuals and the elephant? Anyone familiar with this? Okay, there's, you know, depending on how long you want the story to, to go, there's either three people or six people and they're all blind, and they're touching the elephant at different parts. One is touching the end of the tusk. You know, one is touching the side, and one is touching this, the tail. And as they're asked, what are you touching? The, the, the person touching the, the tusk says, I'm touching something. I'm touching a spear. And the person touching the, the side of the elephant says, I'm touching a wall. And the person that's touching the tail uh, says, I'm touching a horse, because they think that the, the, the tail is like a horse when in reality they're all touching the same thing and they miss out on the bigger picture of what's happening here. Oftentimes, when we look at trying to develop a theology of Paul, if we look specifically at one singular moment, we can miss out on Paul's overall theology. And if we only look at Paul, we miss out on the biblical narrative or the biblical uh, overall biblical canon as it relates to specific Topics. One of the questions that the youth have tonight is, how does Timberwood read the Bible uh, literally or uh, specific verses? Which I found to be a very interesting question. Um, and, and so I got to answer the question because Amanda was like, I don't want to answer this question. I think you should answer this question. <laughs> Actually, she asked John or I, and John said Eric should answer the question. Um, but the the importance of understanding genre 
uh, when we come to our hermeneutical framework and exegesis, meaning what did this letter mean to the church in Philemon's house in the first century, is the most important thing that we look at when we come to the text and understanding how it fits within the larger uh, canon of Scripture is very important. And at times we say, yeah, 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 okay, I get it. But I think we need to continually reiterate how important it is that we can't look at a singular uh, phrase or verse from Paul or even a singular book from Paul and say this is Paul's theology on a specific topic. So we have really uh, this interesting start uh, to this kind of main introduction of, of what he has to say. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And it, it brings up this interesting question because uh, we have this tendency, right, when somebody uh, says something to us and we say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. What does that actually mean? Does that mean like, I just prayed for you and so now I'm, I'm good to go? Does that mean I'm going to write it down into my list, my book of prayers, and I'm going to fervently seek God's uh, direction on this and whatever you're asking for, I'm going to go on my knees and ask God to, to be with this request? Does this mean that, that we're going to follow up and say, hey, I've been praying for this thing, how is it going, and, and, and see it as this relational entry point? And so when Paul says, when I remember you in my prayers, it is implying that he is continuing to build this relationship with Philemon from afar and through his relationship with the Lord so that when he goes to God in prayer, he is remembering and celebrating and thanking God for who Philemon is. Now the cynic comes to this first part of the book and the letter and says, Paul is just buttering him up. And those of you who are laughing, yeah. Is Paul doing this as a way, you know, when you're looking to, to get something from somebody, you call them and you're like, hey, man, oh, it's so good to see you the other day. And, oh, you're such a good friend. I love you so much. And, and oh, just what you're doing, I'm going to follow you on, on, on all of these social medias, and it's just amazing who you are, and oh, by the way, <laughs> I don't think that we have to be that cynical. I think that Paul has a genuine connection with Philemon, and he is remembering him and thanking God for him in his prayers. Because again, Philemon, we know, has started this church in Colossae and in his house. He is making significant sacrifices for the advancement of the kingdom of God in the first century church. And, God, and Paul is saying, I am thankful for that, and I'm thankful for you, and I am remembering you. Part of it is because, verse 5, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So what is he being thankful for? He's being thankful for the love and the faith that Philemon has. Now this becomes very interesting translationally because 
is the love that he has, okay, toward the saints and the faith that he has towards Jesus, because that's what we have here. We have uh, two verbs, your love and your faith, toward Jesus and for the saints. So is he specifying that the faith is for Jesus and the love is for the saints, which is kind of weird because they are in separate, they're in opposite places. Is he saying his love uh, and faith is both for Jesus and for the saints? But how is it that we have faith toward the saints, which we're going to get to in a little bit? I think more than likely it's both and that his love is for the saints and for Jesus Christ. So in essence, everything that is flowing out of his faith in his life is a direct result of his love for Christ and his love for the saints. Because again, Philemon is a relational book. It's about relationships and the restoration of relationships within the church and how we see one another within the church. And he says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now it's interesting, and so many times the English uh, translation is so good to us, and then other times it completely fails us. Happens twice here in the first part of Philemon. The English absolutely fails to translate what Paul is trying to communicate. Because when he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, when we think about that phrase, the sharing of your faith, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Testimony. We think of it in, I'm going to tell you, share with you about how God has affected my life. Now, the sharing word that he uses in the Greek is actually the word for fellowship. You say, well, why would they do that? I don't know. I wasn't on this committee. I was on a different committee at the time for this translation. I was busy. But he uses this idea of the koinonia of your faith, the fellowship of faith. So this idea of the fellowship of faith is so much larger and bigger than the sharing of our faith. And it it translates in the way that fellowship is sharing in life with other believers. So you can make the case in that sense that sharing of your faith is accurate, except it's not accurate in how we distort it in our own brains. When we think about the fellowship of our faith, it is the living out of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. So it's literally the giving away or the living out in community of our faith. And it's one of those things that we... Uh, this, has been a, this has been a significant, I don't know, rock in my shoe, bee in my bonnet, except I don't usually wear hats. 
we come to the text so often from an individualistic mindset where we don't want to talk in communal terms as it relates to faith. And so we see faith as a very much a vertical thing. It's between me and God through Jesus Christ. And then once I've received that or through this process, then I go and give things to you so that that you will too be in this vertical relationship with Christ. And that is not at all a New Testament understanding of how faith and the body of Christ is supposed to be lived out. And so what Paul is saying is, Philemon, you have been living out your faith within the community of Colossae, within the church, and it's, it's about the mutual sharing of one's time, talent, treasure is what we say, very much an Acts 2 approach to faith. Because faith in a church body, which I would contend faith doesn't really function the way it's supposed to outside of a body, outside of the body of Christ, looks like being and doing and sharing together in everything. To which all the introverts said, Is there another option? But when we see what, what is happening in this letter, we realize it is about the fellowship of this body of believers in the first century and how they are living out their faith together. And here the head of the church, Philemon, is being praised by Paul, and Paul is thanking God for what he is doing by living out his faith. And what is the result when Paul, what, what is the result of Philemon living out, fellowshipping, sharing his faith? He is becoming effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And remember last week, Peter was talking about this concept of knowledge. So it's the more we live out our faith in community, the more we understand what our faith is supposed to look like, the more we understand who Jesus Christ is, and the more our actions are driven towards Christ. And again, we, we, we have issues when we, when we talk about every good thing or every good work. We're like, yeah. Can we talk about the grace and peace again? Because like, talking about the works thing makes me really uncomfortable. But as Beale says in his commentary, the aim is to do such good works with a view toward Christ. So this view of how we live out our faith is by doing good things toward Christ for the body. See that? Philemon is being commended because he is not living out an individualistic faith. He is 
doing everything he can to bring people to Christ, and his life is driven by his commitment to Christ and living out his faith in community toward Christ with his actions. And this makes a lot more sense when we look at why would Paul say he's a prisoner of Christ? Because he's essentially saying, Philemon, you and I are living out our lives the exact same way. And this is a model for how we are to live out our faith. And then what is the product of that? Paul says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Again, this word for joy and the, the multiplication of joy is something that Paul talks about. Remember back in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Make my joy complete, or complete my joy by having the same mind in Christ. And he's saying, when a life is lived out in this manner, what is the result is joy. Because Paul is experiencing the joy and the comfort because Paul has this relationship with Philemon, and I love this because he said, again, the English fails us here. He says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. It's not heart. And how we know this is because the Greek word for heart is cardia. That's where we get uh, cardiac, you know, the whole idea of the heart, cardio. I was doing some cardio today, wondering why I was doing cardio. Sweating. This word is bowels. <laughs> because the bowels of the saints have been refreshed. And you immediately think, did they have an appointment the next day? They're having a colonoscopy. What, what does it look like to have my bowels refreshed? Now, you take that out of context. <laughs> And it gets awkward. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, the, the emotive uh, center of human beings was in your bowels, more actually in your kidneys. And so what Paul is talking about here is when a life is lived out and when faith is shared within the community, what happens is joy and comfort and the refreshment of the whole person. And if you remember back to 1 John, what does John say? We, our joy is made complete through the fellowship with one another. And so for Paul here, he's saying to Philemon, what you are doing and the life that you are living is having lasting, lasting impact not only on me, but also on the saints. In essence, people know how you're living your life, and it's making a huge difference. And the question becomes, 
how do we embody and embrace this same type of posture? And this idea of refreshment is going to come back in verse 20. And this idea of refreshment in Christ. And so again, we start to ask ourselves, what is Paul doing in writing this letter? Because we know that Paul early on places himself in this lower level of uh, basically criminal, and he uses the language of a criminal, somebody who's in prison. Onesimus is a criminal, which you're like, when does he come in? He's next week, okay? Trying not to touch, uh, step on uh, Derek's touchdown call for next week. And so then what he does is he makes this direct connection between himself and Philemon, and he's trying to make relational connections about how we live out our faith. Because this is an interesting thing. As we approach this concept of how do we go about addressing problems within the church and challenges that exist, and how do we be reconcilers? This is, the, this is really the overarching question of this whole book of Philemon. How do we live out a life of a reconciler within the body of Christ? And we see Paul very early on setting the stage by making this relational connection with Philemon and saying, man, you are doing such an amazing job. The faith that you are living out is having a lasting impact, and how you are doing life, how you are doing faith, is making a huge, huge impact. And so, in essence, what I'm about to say this is Paul, doesn't affect what you have been doing. Or to say it slightly differently, because of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, because of your track record of living out your faith, the next step that you are going to be asked to take is the most natural step. Because what he is going to ask Philemon to do is one of the hardest things that we continue to this day to have a problem with, especially within the church, especially within a family context or within the body. And Paul says, when you live out your faith in the way that you're living out your faith, it brings about joy it brings about comfort, and it brings about refreshment. And when I read those things, I think to myself, if somebody were to look at my life, and somebody were to look at my faith, and someone were to write a letter to me, would they echo the same sentiment? Would they say, Wow, Eric, the way that you're living out your faith produces joy and it produces love and it produces refreshment for the body of Christ. And as I read this and as I've been studying this and going through this over and over, I just keep asking myself, is that true for my life 
not in a self-evaluative way, because we all know we're terrible at that. I made some, some food the other night, and I was like, oh, this is really good. And my family's like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's pretty good. No, 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 it's not really good at all. In fact, we're going to throw it away. So the question becomes, how do we assess where our faith and our lives are at in this type of framework? Questions? Yes, so that would be uh, anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, generally. Yeah. So it's not like it's uh, some special group of, like, VIP Christians. (laughs) He's he's saying it more generally. And, And, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because when you contrast our... If, if we said, all right, uh, I'm going to bring in a prisoner, and I'm going to bring in a saint, we would say, yeah, okay, uh, I'll be with the saint, and uh, those people that we don't want here, they can go with the prisoner. So he's, he's using it intentionally in a drastic contrast to himself, but he's not using it. There's not a specific group that he is thinking of in that category. So. And that's, you know, you see in in verse 5, he says, uh, for all the saints, meaning anyone who is uh, in Christ. All right, so um, some new faces here. So the ladies are going to stay in here and split into two groups. uh, And the gentlemen are going to go to their groups. I think, most of you have been in a group. Am I accurate on that? You have not been in a group, correct? One time? Okay, perfect. There you go. Uh, you guys can go ahead and head to your groups, wherever they may be.